Welcome to the Juno Report, brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. I love my dog, baby, I love my dog. And now, let's get on with today's program of the Juno Report. Well, and welcome to our September Juno Report. We've got a full agenda, so we're going to get right to it. I want to thank all of you who have written in with show suggestions. I'm really excited about that, and I'll be in touch with all of you, and we'll do something with that. In the meantime, this week we have, or this month, I guess I should say, we have a wonderful presentation from Rebecca Minelga. She is a puppy raiser and she is also certified in animal first aid, and she was the presenter at the Guide Dog Users of Washington State Fling last weekend. So I have edited this report for you, and um, it was originally almost an hour and a half, so we have had to shrink it down a little bit, but I hope we've captured um, most of the important information, and I hope that you will enjoy hearing from Rebecca Manelga. I have my assistant with me today, uh, so if you are tuning in on video, you might be able to see Winnipeg hanging out with me. She is a guide dog puppy in training. She is number 10. So we have hit double digits. <laughs> um, we never imagined we would be double digits family, but uh, <laughs> here we are. Uh, and so she's going to be my assistant. I am going to demonstrate some of our skills today. Uh, and then I'll also talk through them as I'm demonstrating them to hopefully give us as many avenues of understanding as possible. Um, So just before I jump in, a little bit about me. My family and I have been raising guide dogs for about 14 years now. Like I said, Winnipeg is number 10, so we've been doing this for a little bit, um, and we absolutely love it. It's such a great opportunity, um, and I'm so grateful uh, that all of you have made us a part of your community as well. Uh, I have two young sons, and it is so important for them to know and understand that um, community is not just the people that look exactly like them. Uh, community is everybody around us. And so we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your community as well. Um, I'm also a nationally certified trainer for CPR and first aid for humans. Um, and I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. Um, so a class like this, uh, combining my CPR and first aid training with my love of guide dogs, Uh, and some of my risk management background. Uh, This is kind of my passion for both. It's a great opportunity for me to share that. So thank you so much for that. I'm so honored that you would ask me um, to be a part of this. 
Um, so with that, kind of before we get started too much, uh, there are a couple things that are just really important to talk through. Um, so what I'm going to be presenting today is based heavily on the American Red Cross Pet First Aid course. It is not endorsed by Guide Dogs for the Blind or any other guide dog organization. Uh, and so that's really important to understand because it should never supersede recommendations from those organizations for how to care for your dogs. <clears throat> this is also not a certification course. It used to be. It is not anymore. It's now a general information course. Uh, and so it is widely and publicly available uh, and it is free. So if you have a smartphone, you can go to either the Apple uh, App Store or the Android App Store, and you can actually download the American Red Cross Pet First Aid app. Uh, and so most of the things I discuss here today, as well as many others that I won't be discussing for the sake of time and also for the sake of um, applicability, uh, are available through that app. Uh, so I highly recommend that app. I will give the caveat, it is not very accessibility friendly, uh, and I don't know how it would work with any accessibility apps that you would have on your smartphones. Um, so I cannot speak to that, um, but it's got great information. And then finally, everything that I discuss here today uh, is not to replace advanced veterinary care. And I'm sure everybody knows that, but I just want to make sure that we're really clear. These are meant to be emergency procedures that will buy time until you can get to advanced veterinary care and until you can speak to your guide dog organization. Uh, so when in doubt, call your vet, call your organization. Uh, these are not meant to replace any guidance that you would receive from either of those sources. Uh, so with that, those are kind of the caveats, and uh, we can jump in. Uh, so I want to start with before an emergency occurs, uh, and it's really important that we're doing some prep work before we get into that emergency situation where now we have to use these skills that we've learned. Uh, and so to kind of speak to that, like, why? Why would we need to have a preparation? Why would we need to take time to know what we're going to do before that emergency occurs? Uh, and there's two reasons. The first is uh, a baseline is key to understanding when there is something wrong with your dog. Things like your dog is bleeding, that's going to present fairly obviously. Okay, I need to care for my dog. But if a dog is unwell, your best bet to see that they're unwell or to note that they are unwell is knowing what their baseline is. Uh, and so we're gonna talk a little bit about body knowledge of your dog. And so with that, I'm gonna turn my little camera here towards Winnipeg. She is on her back, hanging out. She is a happy pup right at the moment. Um, and so I know for Guide Dogs for the Blind, and I assume for other organizations as well, having these handling opportunities is really important. So one of the things you can do as you're having your handling time is you can be paying attention to some different things about their body that will begin to give you a baseline understanding of what is normal for them. So the first one is their breathing rate. And so as they are either sleeping or if you're doing puppy handling, you can just really gently set your hand right around their rib cage. She's going to wiggle on me now, which is going to make it hard. And you're just going to count the number of breaths 
over the course of a minute. Now you can cheat and you can do it for 10 seconds and then multiply it by six. But some of these you will not get really good, accurate breath counts when you do that. So we do recommend that you do it for a full minute. And you just kind of rest your hand on them. And every time they take a breath in, you count it. Normal for dogs across almost all breeds is about 10 to 30 breaths per minute. However, if they're panting, they can gust up to 200 breaths per minute. So that's a lot. Uh, so again, the importance of knowing what's normal for your dog. Hey, what are you doing? Come back here. The next thing is there, it's called the capillary refill time. It also is called blood perfusion. So it is how quickly blood flows back into a part of their body after we do something to kind of push the blood away from that part of their body. And that tells us a lot about uh, heart rate and also about pulse. So to check capillary refill time on a dog, you're going to go ahead and lift up their lip to expose part of those lovely pink gums. We'll talk more about the color of their gums in a moment. And you're going to take your thumb and you're going to briefly press your thumb against those pink gums. Then you're going to remove your thumb and you're going to count how many seconds it takes for those beautiful pink gums to go from white back to pink. It should take one to two seconds. If it takes longer than four to five seconds, it's showing you that your dog does not have great circulation at that moment. Uh, it will stay pale for longer than one to two, maybe three seconds tops. So that's a great sign that there's something going on with your dog internally that they may not have any external symptoms, but it's important to note. The other thing is just paying attention to the color of that exposed skin. Once again, when you lift up that lip, you should be able to see beautiful, healthy pink gums. If they are other colors, if they are pale or gray or white, uh, or even if they're blue, blue is a sign that there's poor oxygen circulation. They're struggling with their breathing. Uh, and so those are colors that are very concerning and definitely should require a call to the vet. Now, it's important to keep in mind that your dog's normal may not look exactly like every other dog's normal. Uh, for those of you that have been following the news, you might have seen Kareth. She's a golden retriever career change down in California. She has a big black spot on her tongue. Uh, and so obviously, we wouldn't look at that big black spot and say, oh, well, that's a discoloration that shows poor circulation. That's just normal for Kareth. Uh, and so definitely knowing what is normal for your dog, taking a look at those gums, those places where you would be checking for that perfusion uh, is important. Because if they have a big black spot on their gums, obviously it's not going to be that beautiful warm pink color. Uh, the final thing we're going to look at to get a baseline for our dogs is their heart rate. And so to check the heart rate on your dog, you want to have your dog laying down on their right side. Winnipeg is not going to help me here. She is laying down on her left side. And if I try to <laughs> roll over, she's going to get super crabby and not want to lay down at all. <laughs> so you are supposed to check for heart rate underneath the left armpit. So I'm just going to slide my hand in here 
and I'm going to tuck my fingers way up into her armpit. And if I am very, very still, I should be able to feel her heart rate. Yep, there it is. Against her ribs, way up deep in her armpit. And if I count that for a minute, I should feel about 60 to 100 beats per minute. 60 if she's resting, 100 if she's been active, running around the backyard, those kinds of things. Um, and so that's a great way, again, if you're seeing poor blood perfusion when you check your dog's gums, follow it up with a heart rate check. And then definitely call your vet if it's outside of normal. Okay. So those are some of the body work things that you can kind of begin to understand about your dog before an emergency occurs. Uh, and recognizing that an emergency is occurring is a key component of caring for an emergency. Uh, and you're not going to recognize that that emergency is occurring unless you know what is normal for your dog. In addition to these body things that I just demonstrated, you'll likely see a behavior change as well. And we'll talk a little more about that towards the end of my presentation. I'll talk about what shock in a dog looks like. Uh, and so you'll see some behavior changes as well. Again, nobody is more qualified to know that something is off in your dog than you. Trust your gut. If something seems off, call your vet, call your organization. Uh, it is always better to find out sooner than later. Um, all right, so to kind of wrap up our first section here on before an emergency occurs, the last thing I want to talk about is emergency preparation. Um, and with hurricanes and potentials for earthquakes and all the things that are going on in our world today, uh, this is as much for people as it is for dogs. Uh, so my first recommendation is to have a pet first aid kit. Uh, that can be a part of your human first aid kit, uh, or it can be something separate that is for your pet uh, or for your guide dog. Um, that is well worth investing in. Uh, there are lists available online. I would recommend looking at a couple of different lists, kind of seeing what's common between them. And then also thinking about what is going to work for you, for your needs, and for your space. So for example, in our household, we have an entire shelf on a closet, or in a closet, devoted to our primary first aid kit. I train first aid, I do first response. It makes sense for us to have an extensive first aid kit available in our home. We also have fully stocked first aid kits in both of our vehicles because I'm often out in public and I have to use these skills when I'm out in public. So again, it makes sense for me to have quite a stocked first aid kit when I'm out in public. If we're going hiking or cycling, our first aid kit is about the size of my hand and it's about as thick as both of my hands put together like prayer hands. Uh, so it's an extremely slimmed down version. If you are carrying a backpack when you are out and about with your guide dog, you might want a very slimmed down version like that to carry with you, but at home you might have a much larger version. So think about your needs uh, and what you come up against on your day-to-day -day life, uh, and then also think about what are things that are recommended across the board because, hey, these are things that are really useful no matter what the situation um, I also highly recommend that you add dog materials to your human emergency kit. 
Uh, and so it's recommended that for evacuating, you have a three days plan. That's food, that's um, medication, everything you would need to survive for three days during an evacuation. And for shelter in place, which we're getting a lot of practice with these days, uh, it's actually recommended that you have 14 days worth. Interestingly, when all of this first went down back in April, Guide Dog sent out an email to all of their raisers and said, we want you to have a two-month supply of food laid in because we don't know what's going to happen with supply chains. Uh, we don't know if food is going to be readily available. We don't want you to run out. So definitely add food, any medications for your dog. If you are stockpiling water for an extended shelter in place, think about how much water your dog is going to need on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, think about cleanup supplies. How are we going to make sure that we can clean up after the dog if we have to shelter in place? Um, so definitely be thinking about adding emergency supplies for your dog to your human emergency kit. Um, and that should be kept in an easily accessible place in your home, and you should be updating it at least annually. Medications expire, food expires. Um, so those are really important parts of being prepared for an emergency with your dog. It's worth noting here in the Pacific Northwest, there is a 1 in 10 chance that that big one, that major earthquake in the Cascadia subduction zone, is going to happen in the next decade. So that's basically a 100% chance in the next 100 years. For every 10 years, that goes up 10%. Uh, that is worth thinking about. Have those emergency supplies for you and for your dog in place. Uh, and then along with that, make sure you have a predetermined plan for emergencies that includes caring for your dog and that uh, those most likely to be near you know about it. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, whatever that plan is that those close to you know, this is where I'm going to go if we are told to evacuate. This is who I'm going to call if I have to shelter in place. And then finally, practice those evacuation routes in your home, in your place of work. Uh, make sure that you know where you're going to go in case of evacuation. Uh, if there's a fire in your home, do you know how you are going to get out of your home with your dog? Um, so all of those are really critical preparing for an emergency aspects. Uh, those are things that I would highly recommend that you would look into. Um, most humans are not prepared for an emergency. Um, never mind humans having to prepare for themselves and their dogs. Um, so that's a really great way that you can just take that extra step and make sure you and your dog are prepared for that. Um, so with that, I'm going to actually finally get into this uh, first aid piece of this talk. Uh, Winnipeg has now gone to sleep, so she is going to be the worst assistant ever. Um, so I want to talk first about muzzling, and that's kind of not a great word in our dog training communities these days. Um, and so I want to open it up, uh, if we can, uh, why do you think it would be important to know how to muzzle a dog in an emergency, particularly in a first aid emergency? I would say it's because when a dog is in pain, they are scared, and the first thing they will try to do is bite you. You are absolutely correct, Haley. When a dog is in pain and scared, they get very defensive, and a bite is the quickest way that they can show that they are feeling defensive, they don't feel safe, 
Um, and so the first thing we want to do when we have a medical emergency is actually going to be to muzzle our dog for our safety and also for their safety, because if they were to bite something inappropriate, they could actually hurt themselves as well. Winnipeg, come on. So I'm going to have Winnipeg stand up, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate how we muzzle a dog in an emergency, uh, and then I will also talk through it as well, so that those of you that are not able to see us today uh, are going to also understand how to do it. So what I have here is I have a length of roller gauze. This is going to be one of the things that's recommended in your first aid kits for your pets. And so we're going to go ahead and unroll it a fair ways because uh, we're going to need a length here in order to do this. And we're going to grab it at the midpoint and we're going to gently rest it over the dog's nose, over the dog's muzzle. Come here. Hi, I love you. And then underneath their nose, we're going to crisscross it. So we're going to make a little X underneath the nose. And we're going to pull that relatively tight. Now, right now, she's very uncomfortable. She is upset with me. But she also cannot open her mouth. So she cannot bite. So we're going to do that one more time. We're going to come over the top of the nose. And we'll crisscross. And under the bottom of the nose. Come back here. Thank you. Sit. And again, crisscross under the nose. So once you've done that twice, you'll take the two ends of your roller gauze, tuck them behind and under the ears, and you'll tie a firm double knot at the back of the neck. All right. Now, she cannot open her mouth. So if I need to give her any care, I know that I am safe. She is not going to bite me. She can still breathe just fine, but I know I am safe and she will not be able to bite me. That's good. I did not have roller gauze earlier this week as I was getting ready and preparing. It was a good thing I checked because I had to go out and get some. Uh, and so interestingly, uh, the leashes that we use are just about the perfect length to do exactly this skill. And then they can actually clip behind the ears using one of the extra metal rings. Uh, and so if you have a Guide Dogs for the Blind leather leash uh, with the two rings on it, you can actually use your leash to create a muzzle. Um, so that was a fun little interesting thing that I learned this week as I was just making sure I understood how to do this skill. So that is how to create a homemade muzzle, should it be needed, before you give any kind of medical care to your dog. Good girl. You're so good. So, Rebecca, is it okay if people use a commercial, um, a commercial muzzle? Because that would be so much easier. Absolutely. Yes. If you have a commercial muzzle and you are carrying it with you, you can definitely do that. Uh, this is meant to be if you do not have one available to you. Okay. Okay. Is a commercial muzzle like the head collar thing similar to that or is it not? Would that work? Uh, a head collar would not work. The okay. idea of a head collar is yeah. that it's like a halter. They can still open their mouth. They can eat in a head mm -hmm. collar. That's true. They can drink in a head collar so it would not okay. keep the mouth closed. So then what I'll do now is I'll go on to bleeding because bleeding is going to be one of the most common things that we see, um, either non-emergency bleeding or in some cases emergency bleeding. And so this can be from cuts. It can be from tears. It can be from bites. Uh, you may see bleeding in a pad from a thorn, those kinds of things. 
and so for materials for bleeding, you are going to want to make sure that you have either a towel or something like this. This is a gauze square. This is a three inch by three inch. I would not recommend getting anything smaller. It's too small. You could get something bigger, but they become bulky very quickly. Uh, and so you would use either a towel or this three by three piece of gauze, and you would want to apply direct pressure to the wound for three to five minutes. So once again, we're going to say that for whatever reason, Winnipeg stuck her nose someplace that she was not supposed to. I know, you did. And so we're going to pretend that she has a big scrape here on her poor little nose and it's bleeding. So I'm going to take my piece of gauze and I'm going to lay it over that scrape. And I'm going to apply some good solid pressure there for three to five minutes. Girl. You are so good. You're so good. She's like, stop touching my muzzle, mama. <laughs> You're so good. Now, if I happen to notice that she had bled through this piece of gauze, I'm not going to take it off. I'm going to add more gauze on top of it. Because gauze is made with this amazing crisscross pattern. And that crisscross pattern emulates the way that blood vessels repair themselves. Blood vessels repair themselves in a similar crisscross pattern. Platelets come together and begin to stiffen and then you get a scab. So we are using the gauze to create uh, that scab matrix. So we don't want to take it off because then we take off that matrix that's forming. We're just going to add more on top. Once the bleeding stops, if you want to cover it, you can use something like our roller gauze that we used for our muzzle, depending on the location. It's going to be really hard to roller gauze a bandage in place on the tip of her nose uh, versus if it were on her shoulder, for example, you could put some roller gauze on there. Uh, keep in mind that dogs are going to tend to lick and gnaw and chew. Uh, so if you have an e-collar to keep them from doing that, that's great. Otherwise, once the bleeding is stopped, most dogs are pretty resilient uh, and don't need a lot of additional care. If you feel like you need to disinfect the wound, maybe it came from a bite and you're not sure if there's an infection to that bite, uh, you can use warm water or some saline fluid. Uh, but again, definitely call your vet. They might want to do something like a rabies check just to make sure that your dog didn't pick something up with that bite. Uh, now, there are some additional situations where this would not be enough care. Uh, so the first of these is severe bleeding. If it is still bleeding heavily after five minutes of pressure, we then call that severe bleeding. Uh, and that is definitely going to need a trip to the vet. It will probably need at least a couple of stitches. Uh, and so if you are noticing that it's still bleeding really heavily after three to five minutes, definitely call your emergency vet and try and get that dog in as quickly as possible. Uh, and continue to apply pressure. That is the best thing that you can do for a bleeding wound uh, until additional care can be had. Um, bites from wild animals or from other dogs, I mentioned, they may pick up something like rabies, so definitely have them seen by a vet. And then anything that's deep enough to require stitches. Uh, and there isn't really a rule of thumb for how we would know that stitches are required. 
Um, so look for that severe bleeding, that more than five minutes. All right, the other thing I want to talk about with wounds is pad injuries, because these can be really common for our dogs. They're on their feet a lot. Uh, and so it's not uncommon for them to have an injury to their pads. Uh, now, this is a skill. I'm going to demonstrate it. I'm going to talk through it. It takes a little bit of practice. So if you think you might want to use this skill in the future, I highly recommend trying it before you need it um, because it does take a little bit of skill to do it well. All right. So in order to bandage a pad wound, you are going to need something like your three by three gauze square. It can be larger. Again, it can get bulky pretty quickly. So three by three is a great size. You're also going to want your roller gauze, which we've already used for our muzzle. And then you're going to want something like tacky roll. Uh, and so this is tacky roll. It is like roller gauze, but it has some stretch to it. Uh, and it sticks to itself. So as you use it and you roll it, you press it against itself and it sticks to itself. Uh, and so this is a great first aid tool. This is fantastic for children who don't like band-aids because they hurt coming off. This is also fantastic for dogs because you don't necessarily want to use tape that's going to rip at their fur when it comes off. Um, so I highly recommend this tacky roll um, for all sorts of first aid emergencies. This is my go-to. It's one of my favorite first aid materials. If you don't have tacky roll or if you don't have access to tacky roll, uh, tape does work. You're going to want to use a medical tape, not like packing tape or duct tape. Um, try and use a medical tape. It is less sticky, and so it will hurt less coming off. All right, so what you're going to do, and what I'll do is I will try and bring Winnipeg here into focus. When you have a pad injury, is you are going to want to first control the bleeding. So we're going to say that it has been three to five minutes. I've been using my gauze pad here on her foot, and she seems to have stopped bleeding. So now I'm ready to go ahead and wrap it to keep it protected for the next day or so. All right, now I can do this in a couple of different ways. I can use my roller gauze to go up and down the leg a few times and then rotate it and wrap around the leg. That is definitely a skill that takes some practice. So if you want to use that method, you are going to want to um, look into that more extensively and have a chance to practice that skill. What we recommend is that you are going to take two lengths of your roller gauze, long enough to go at least above their ankle, and you're going to cut those, and you are going to place them in a plus sign. So there's my first piece. Here's my second piece. I have trimmed it, and I'm going to place it in a plus sign so that the middles overlap. And then I'm going to take my gauze and I'm going to put that right in the middle of my plus sign. I'm trying to see where you guys will be able to get a good visual. Okay. And now I'm going to take this whole shebang and I'm going to pick it up and place her pad right in the middle of that T. Now what you'll notice is that the ends of those plus signs then come up on either side of her leg and also 
on the front and back of her leg, creating basically a stirrup for that gauze pad that is on the bottom of her foot. Then I'm going to take either my roller gauze or my tacky roll, and starting at the toes, I'm going to wrap that whole thing together. Now, when you're doing this, you want your wrap to be firm, but not too tight. You should be able to slide two fingers under the edge of your wrapping. Otherwise, it'll be too tight and it could cut off circulation. Now, once I have rollered it, I can cut off the end and tuck the end into the top of the rolling. Gonna tuck that end in. And then I can either use my tacky roll and just roll the top of it or use tape to roll the top of it to keep it in place. Once again, we want to make sure we're going above that first joint, that ankle joint, because that bend in the joint is going to do a lot of the work to keep it on our dog. All right, and then of course, as they're recovering, we don't necessarily want to be taking them out and making them walk on this injured and bandaged foot. What do you think, Winnipeg? Nice. You're so good, thank you. Now that is a complex skill. Again, I highly recommend that if you want to use that, practice ahead of time. Uh, that's going to be part of your emergency preparation is knowing how to use these skills uh, that I'm talking about today. Um, I have practiced this about four or five times, and it's still not a great skill. It is not my strong suit. So clearly more practice is needed for me. Uh, are there any questions about treating bleeding wounds before I move on? I, I think one thing that would be helpful, because we do have quite a few people who actually um, can't see what you're doing. So when you've actually designed the whole thing, and it and it's actually just kind of coming up all the way around, almost like a cast, isn't it, kind of? It is, yes. So when you make that plus sign out of the gauze, you have very long tails that come all the way up the leg above the first joint in the leg. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you wrap the whole thing uh, on Winnipeg. It is actually, it's almost to her elbow. So it is quite long. Um, it's probably eight to 10 inches long from her pad to where the wrapping ends. Uh, so the last thing that uh, I want to talk about and spend a chunk of time on is heat and cold related emergencies, because these can be common uh, in our area in Washington, depending on where in Washington you live. Uh, and so the first one I want to talk about is heat-related emergencies. So your dog getting too hot. Uh, and again, prevention is key with heat-related emergencies, making sure they have lots of access to cool, fresh water, keeping them inside or in an air-conditioned area on particularly hot days, etc. Uh, be aware that their pads, their skin on the bottom of their feet can burn when it touches hot pavement or hot concrete. Uh, and so the rule of thumb that we recommend is to take the back of your hand and press it down. <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Press it down on the asphalt or the sidewalk where you're going to be walking. 
you want to use the back of your hand because that is more sensitive than the, um, the pads of your fingers. Um, and as you're pressing it down, you should be able to hold the back of your hand to the ground for at least seven seconds without becoming so uncomfortable that you pull it away. If you can't do that for at least seven seconds, it is too hot for your dog to be walking on that ground. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and something else to keep in mind, we often forget that sand can be extremely hot on our feet. Uh, and so whether it is pavement and asphalt and sidewalk or whether it is uh, sand, we definitely want to make sure we're checking sand the same way before we ask our dogs to walk on it. Now, if it's too hot to walk on the ground, uh, we still have lives. We still have places to go. Uh, and so uh, definitely use booties if you have those. Those are meant to protect the dog's feet from both hot and cold. Um, so definitely utilize those. Uh, if you can have them stand on a towel while they're waiting to load in or out of a car, that's a great tool as well. Uh, and then if they can walk on either the shade or the grass, uh, those are great ways to work around it as well. But booties are probably going to be your best bet for our busy lives as we're taking our dogs with us everywhere. We also want to make sure we're aware of the potential for dehydration in our dogs. Uh, when we're home and they have free access to water, they can drink whenever they want. That's great. When we're out in public and we're asking them to go for longer periods of time without taking a drink, we need to be aware of when they're showing signs of dehydration. Uh, and so one of the quick ways that we can look for that is we can actually grab a portion of their skin and fur and lift up. If you've dealt with puppies, you know they have all that extra fur and skin. They have rolls and rolls and rolls of it. As our dogs get older, they have less rolls, fewer rolls, but they do still have some ability to stretch their skin. And so if you pull up on that skin and fur and then let go, you should see it bounce back right away. And if you're able to note that in the video right now, you can see I'm pulling up on her skin and fur. And as soon as I let go, it bounces right back. That shows that she is well hydrated. She has good resiliency in her skin. If that skin and fur were to stay tented in that grip, um, that grip visual there, uh, then she would be dehydrated and would need access to water. And the nice thing about that is you can feel it tactilely. Uh, you can tell when you rub your hand down her body that, oh, that grab disappeared. Uh, and you would be able to tell if you made that grab and then rubbed your hand down her body, you would be able to feel it still tented. Um, and so that's a really great tool that we can use to check for dehydration in our dogs. The best place to do it is right between the shoulder blades uh, in the center of the back. Um, so right uh, either just above or just below where the harness sits would be a great place to look for that. If we do think that our dogs are overheated, please call the vet, absolutely, and then begin active cooling. So you're gonna to wanna to submerge as much of your dog as possible in cool water, offer clean, cool water to drink. Um, we're gonna start cooling their body down as quickly as we can. That fur is a great insulating layer, but when our dogs get too hot, it does the opposite, it keeps the heat in. 
So we want to dampen that fur. We want to get that cool water all the way down to their skin so that it can begin to start pulling that heat away from their body. Now, the opposite of heat-related emergencies are going to be our cold-related emergencies. Uh, the first one uh, we'll talk about is frostbite. Uh, so frostbite is most likely to occur on exposed skin surfaces, especially in the extremities. So think of like the tip of the nose of the dog, uh, the pads of the paws, even the tips of the ears, even though they have fur on them, it's very fine fur. Uh, and so the tips of the ears are at danger of frostbite. Uh, this is particularly true if any of these parts of the dog were wet or damp prior to going out in the cold. Prevention is your best bet with frostbite. Use your booties to keep those pads safe. Stay inside if you can. Wait until the dog is dry if they're damp. Uh, and if you notice blisters developing on the pads after being out in the cold, call your vet right away. Those blisters are a sign that frostbite has occurred. And then finally in the cold, hypothermia. So a general rule of thumb is if you're cold, your dog is cold. Think of their fur as like a layer of clothing for them. So if you are outside for a long period of time and you are shivering and you are cold, chances are your dog is cold as well. Uh, look for them to be shivering. Dogs will shiver when they get cold uh, or slowing down as they begin to cool systemically. Uh, their brains begin to slow down. A lot of the blood that was in the brain that helps them do their work well uh, begins to coalesce around their critical organs, their heart, their lungs, etc. And so you'll notice them slowing down quite a bit. Get to a warm place. Consider wrapping them in a blanket. And you can always add a warm, not hot water bottle around 100 degrees, a little bit warmer than they are, 100 to 105 degrees a little bit warmer than they are, uh, but not hot enough to burn them, certainly. Uh, and again, if you think your dog has systemic cooling like hypothermia, definitely call your vet for additional guidance. Really quickly, I wanna cover ingestions because our dogs tend to eat stuff, hopefully less once they become guide dogs. As puppy raisers, we see a lot of ingestions early on, things that they've eaten that they're not supposed to. And ingestion can be anything from a sock to uh, something they just really weren't supposed to eat, a poison. Um, my dog, I have chickens. My dog likes to find the chicken poop, which is really gross to me. Um, so we're doing some work around that. That's disgusting. Um, Definitely call your vet if there has been any kind of an ingestion. Uh, I've had a puppy eat a magnet. That's really dangerous because it can fold over and connect to itself inside of the intestine and create a blockage. Uh, and so treatment for an ingestion may be as simple as waiting for it to pass. My son was very disappointed when a previous puppy ate a Lego. And then I made him go get the Lego after it came out. Um, or it could include things like induced vomiting, uh, or it could include surgery. So definitely find out from your vet which path they would like to take. Uh, and it's a good idea to have hydrogen peroxide available in your pet first aid kit, uh, because that is a typical, a common 
uh, vomit inducer. Uh, so if the vet asks you to induce vomiting, uh, they will give you the correct dosage. Uh, and then they will ask if you have hydrogen peroxide. That's typically what they use to induce vomiting. Um, and it happens very quickly. If you're asked to induce vomiting uh, and you treat them for it, it will be within one to two minutes that they will throw up whatever the item is. All right. And then the last one that I want to talk about really briefly is shock. And I mentioned this early on that sometimes there are no external symptoms for what is going on with our dogs. And seeing them go into shock is going to be the first time that we realize there is something wrong. Um, and so if your dog is ill, you would be looking for symptoms such as those very pale gums. Remember we talked about the um, capillary action where you press your finger to the gums and you wait and see how quickly uh, that pink color comes back. Uh, the gums themselves might even be a pale color, not pink at all. Um, you would also see a depressed mental status. So we kind of talked about this with hypothermia, that they're going to be slowing down. They're not going to be as responsive. They may even in extreme cases become unconscious. Uh, and they're going to have an abnormal pulse or heart rate. It'll either be very slow, much less than those normal standards we talked about, uh, 60 to 100 beats per minute, or it will be very, very fast. Uh, and so if you see that, you are going to want to call your vet, call your emergency vet right away, uh, wrap them up in a blanket to keep them warm. Shock tends to result in general cooling of the body. And then you'll want to bring them in to be seen right away. Uh, we had this happen with one of our previous puppies, Roxanne. Uh, she actually vomited uh, and she had very poor blood perfusion, no capillary response action, uh, depressed mental status. She wasn't unconscious, but she was pretty close. Uh, we called the vet and went in for emergency care. We were seen within an hour of her first symptom uh, and it likely saved her life. Um, she had a viral infection with no other symptoms. Uh, and so once she went into shock, it was because her body was actually shutting down from the viral infection. Um, if we had not brought her in, she likely would not have made it. Uh, so if you see symptoms of shock or a depressed mental status in your dog, call your emergency vet and be seen as soon as possible because uh, that's very serious. It will progress very rapidly uh, and it may save your dog's life to be seen as soon as possible. Um, so with that, just a quick wrap up, general rule, call your vet or your organization for recommendations if there's time and the ability. Otherwise, treat the symptoms. You know, if they're bleeding, treat them and then call the vet or your organization. Definitely consider downloading and studying that American Red Cross Pet First Aid app if you're able to uh, and invite family and friends to do the same. Anyone who's in close proximity to your dog that could be of assistance, uh, it's great for them to know how to help you in caring for your dog in an emergency. Focus on preparation. By and large, most humans aren't prepared for a basic emergency, either medical or environmental. Um, have at least a three days, three ways kit and plan. And it's now a recommendation that you have a 14 day kit. And that's enough for everyone in your family plus your dog. Uh, and include your dog's needs in that plan. 
that is the end of what I have for all of you. Are there any questions about any of the material that I covered this morning? Josette, it looks like you're first. Yes, um, I would like to make some comments. Um, I presently do not have a dog, but I had a wonderful veterinarian back in the 80s who taught me all kinds of stuff uh, that was useful, um, you know, so that it wouldn't cost me a huge amount of money because I was on a low income at the time. Um, in regard to heat, um, he told me, um, of course, a lot of us don't have air conditioning and if it was anything like it was this summer, uh, you know, we had a real heat wave for a couple of days. And he said to put, um, wrap a towel, a cold towel around the dog's neck when it was really hot out. Um, also, um, I always carried antibiotic salve with me as well for, um, for any, you know, if there should be any cuts. And I used hydrogen peroxide for um, cuts and also their ears. Uh, in regard to cold, um, he also mentioned to put salve on their pads because I went back and forth to Alberta where it could go as low as 40 below zero. And I also put uh, bits of... Um, Cotton balls, of course, I had shepherds, cotton balls in their ears to stop the intense cold from going in. <clears throat> Excuse me. So those were just a few comments. Oh, and uh, there's something, I think it's called musher salve or something like that you can get uh, for the pads of their feet. I got some from GDOI a long time ago. Anyway, that's what I mainly wanted to comment on. All right. Yeah, Musher Sav is fantastic. That is such a great tool. We actually use it as well. Um, and so that's a great tool. Sorry, my cleaning robot just started, so you may have heard him in the background. Um, uh, yeah, Musher Sav is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Uh, I know there has been a movement in more recent years to get away from anything that you would apply directly to the skin. Uh, and so booties are more of the recommended option, um, but that's also a really great option as well. Um, so thank you for those comments. Those are great comments. I had a question for you, Rebecca, while we wait for someone else. And and that is um, the co most common first aid problem I create for my dog, <laughs> I put it this way, is that um, sometimes when I am uh, clipping her nails, I have clipped a little close um, onto the quick, especially if her nails have been a little bit long. And, um, and then they sometimes, you know, just bleed a little teeny bit. What's the best way to sort of cauterize that and stop that, like right now, if you accidentally do that to your dog? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I would say, first of all, regular grooming. I, again, I'm always going to recommend prevention uh, before we talk about specific care. Um, and getting nail clippers that have that guard on it uh, is a great investment that makes sure you don't go too deep on the cut. But it does still happen, absolutely, especially with dogs that have dark toenails. Uh, even for razors where we can see the quick, we still get the dog uh, occasionally. 
Um, so you have two options with that. The best is Tiptic powder. You can get that at any pet supply store. Uh, and you just uh, have a little bit in the cap ready to go before you clip the nails. Uh, and then if you do clip too close, you can actually just press the dog's nail into that cap full of Tiptic powder. Um, and it binds with uh, the blood vessels uh, and kind of creates a fake scab uh, almost immediately. Oh, uh, if you don't have Tiptic powder available, you can actually also use cornstarch. Um, so most of us have that in our kitchen cabinets, uh, and that's a great replacement for Tiptic if you don't have it available. And we used to use the soft kitty litter, <laughs> which actually worked pretty well too, because it's you know like the powder kind of. Exactly. It's just going to kind of um, clump it together. That's kind of what it does is it creates a clump and then it hardens real quick. Right. When you were saying pressing on the gums to see if the gums change colors for how they feel, how long do you press on the gums? Not very long, just one to two seconds of press and then remove and look for it to return to color within one to two seconds. We have a lot of sap and I've gotten sap on my dogs. And I used um, just um, some vegetable oil to get it out of my dog's fur, and it worked really well. I'm wondering if you've had that happen and what you've used that's safe for the dogs. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, There's a lot of things out there that can help with that. Uh, Vegetable oil is one option. Um, Groomer's Goop, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's available at most pet supply shops. Uh, and it basically acts very much like uh, like a Gumby Gone or like a vegetable oil. Uh, it kind of allows it to break down a little bit and then get brushed out. Um, I haven't had a lot of issues with that. My cat gets sap all the time. Um, I don't tend to see it a lot with my dogs, so I'm afraid I can't speak to it more than that. We live out in the country, and there's these little kitties that like to run around our area with you know little stripes down their back what do you do if your dog gets sprayed by a skunk there's a variety of different things out there uh the good news is that we really don't uh do turpentine anymore that was the recommendation about 20 years ago for humans and dogs alike uh we don't do that anymore Um, general rule of thumb, uh, is some hydrogen peroxide, some baking soda, and a little bit of like the, the blue dawn, the really good, um, dishwashing soap. Uh, and you mix that all up together and you kind of, um, paste it on the dog as much as you can. You're going to have to make a pretty large batch. Um, but without really stripping, like the turpentine would have really stripped everything. That's kind of what we do now. That's a little bit safer for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still going to have some residual smell, unfortunately. Oh, skunks are bad. Um, but really, uh, when they're sprayed, that's an oil. Uh, that What they got sprayed with is an oil that holds scent. Uh, and so you're looking to strip the oil out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said is- that and Dawn, and what was the other thing? Hydrogen peroxide, baking soda, and Dawn. Oh, baking soda. Okay, okay, thank you. Is tomato juice okay? That's what my dad would use on, on their dog? Give them um, a bath in tomato juice? Yeah, so tomato juice is it's kind of an old wives' tale type thing. Um, so what it is is it has a very strong scent itself. There is nothing in the tomato juice that is going to react chemically with 
the skunk spray to actually remove it or even to remove the odor. It just kind of covers it over and masks it with something that is a little more pleasant, that really strong tomato juice scent. Um, and so long term, uh, you're, you're not going to use that to really get the scent off. Um, but if you like the smell of tomatoes, that's a great option. You talked about, you know, checking the color of the gums. And since many of the people on the line wouldn't be able to tell the color, is there something about the feel or anything else that would help other than having a sighted person around? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, and it, unfortunately, a lot of our medical skills, um, and we run into this even with humans, are uh, extremely neurotypical. They assume a great deal in order for them to work. Um, so color is a great indicator. There is a textural change. Um, you'll notice that instead of being um, like smooth and silky, uh, you might notice that the gum is a little bit tacky. It's a little sticky. Um, and so that is uh, both a sign of dehydration and a sign of um, just something not quite right in terms of circulation. Um, so there is a tactile indicator. Uh, again, it's going to be really subtle. Um, and so knowing your dog, again, is so important. So you can tell the difference between normal and abnormal. Uh, if you have a sighted person with you, uh, or if you have some sight, uh, and they can provide some assistance with that, um, you know, color is going to be your best indicator, uh, but there is a little bit of a tactile change that you may be able to notice if you are examining your dog regularly and you're really familiar with um, what your dog's gums would feel like normally. All right, and that's going to wrap up all of our time for Juno this time. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this presentation on Animal First Aid and uh, just a very good program. And we'll see you all next month here on the Juno Report. You've been listening to the Juno Report. Brought to you by Guide Dog Users Incorporated, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. The Juno Report is a monthly audio magazine featuring all things guide dogs, training programs, and items of general interest to guide dog teams. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions. Get in touch with the Juno Report by emailing junoreport at guidedogusersinc.org. Again, that email address is Juno, J-U-N-O, report at guidedogusersinc.org. Until next month, this is Deb Cook-Lewis with the Juno Report saying, be good to your dog.